these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Head that way. About 20, 25 years ago, whoa, they're excited. About uh, 20, 25 years ago, I was excited like that because I had just bought the perfect and the most cool car I have ever bought in my life. And I bought a lot of cars. I'm just telling you. It was a, uh, now, it was, it was the perfect car for me at that time. And the reason why was that at that time, my kids were very little. And um, I, so I had to have a car that I could get everybody around in, right? But I still needed to have a very cool car at the same time. So I bought a, uh, a Pontiac Bonneville SSEI. Has anybody ever heard of that? I don't even know if they make those anymore. But it was a cool car back in the day. I'm telling you, it was black with gray leather interior and Pontiacs used to, I haven't had a Pontiac for so long, but Pontiacs used to have those glowing orange um, dashboards. I love that. And this particular car, I don't know if they even have these things anymore, but it had like a projector that would rise up out of the dashboard and it would project a hologram of the speed at the bottom of the, of the windshield. I never, I never used it. It was a very, very cool car, and I thought it was perfect, and I actually, at the, when I first bought it, I thought, it's last car I'll ever own. Shut up, Lisa. <laughs> About, oh, it didn't take maybe three months in, I, uh, I, all that cool stuff stopped being so cool to me. You guys ever had that happen? I mean, it was still cool, but it was just kind of normal. And then a few months after that, it, started, it was winter, and, and I, I noticed a couple of things, that there started to be some potholes in the road. And this car, because it was built so close to the ground to be aerodynamic, it, every time I hit a pothole or a, a rut in the road, I'd bottom out. It just ticked me off every time it happened. And then if it snowed two inches, I'd get stuck. And the coolest, perfect car that I've ever owned was fast becoming not the coolest perfect car I'd ever owned, until one day I started looking for another car. <laughs> now, why do I tell you that story? Because I tell you that story because it illustrates a problem that all human beings have. Some of you are sitting back there and you're saying, Craig, you have that problem. I don't have that problem. I don't have a problem with cars. Listen to me. The story I just told you was, wasn't a story about a problem with cars. That was a story about a symptom of a problem that I had. And you have too. And this morning, as we continue our journey, for those of you who are guests or visitors with us, we have, um, ever since the beginning of the year, and for the rest of the year really, we are going to be on a journey through Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And as we continue our journey through um, the, uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, this morning we're going to look more deeply at that problem that I alluded to a moment ago. But here's the most important thing that I want you to hear from me today. Not only are we going to um, look more deeply at this problem that every human being has and deals with to one degree or another, we're, I'm also going to point you to the solution to that problem for every human being as well, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
And uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, which is awesome, um, that's going to be on page 1,135. I don't know what page it is on your Bible, but in those church Bibles, they're 1,135. As you're looking that up, um, let me give you a, a little bit of a recap of some, some things that we talked about last week, because it will help for this week, I believe. Um, if you were with us last week, you may recall that Pastor Billy gave a masterful uh, explanation of God's design for sex. You remember that? It was beautiful. Now, I will also let you know, so what was it? Number one, what we learned was that God's design for sex is that it is designed to be shared between one man and one woman within the bonds of marriage for life, right? Now, what I discovered was that um, a lot of us, upon hearing God's design for sex, a lot of us felt guilty as a result of hearing that message because we haven't always lived into God's perfect design for sex. And we felt guilty because of it. And I want you to hear something from me. If that's you, listen to what I have to say today. If you have asked God to forgive you, you need to stop it. You need to stop feeling guilty. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day so that you might be forgiven and that you might be able to live your life, the rest of your life, with freedom. Amen? Somebody, amen! That's good news. So, if you've been feeling guilty because of the sins from your past, um, and you've asked forgiveness of those sins in your past, guess where that comes from? That guilt. That guilt comes from the devil. And he's going to try everything he can to try to keep you in bondage and keep you thinking, oh, I'm a wretched sinner. And you are, but you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're going to talk more about that later on today, too. You've been forgiven, you have been set free, and you have the privilege to live into that freedom every day. So that should make you feel good. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. amen. All right. So now you're probably thinking, whew, we're done with sex, right? If you read ahead, you'll know that in chapter 7, Paul is not through yet, okay? We are still um, talking about the, the, um, God's plan for sex, but I'm going to do you all a favor, and I'm going to sum up this first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, very succinctly for you today. I want you to read it yourself. I'm not going to take time to read the, that whole first portion of 1 Corinthians 7 for you, so I want you to read it for yourself, but... I'm going, to, I'm going to sum it up for you this morning. And this is, this is really, really important for you to hear. Never, what he's saying here in the first section in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that we are never to use sex as a tool or as a weapon to get what we want from our spouse. Let me say it again. We are never to use sex as a tool or as a weapon to get what we want from our spouse. You see, when you enter into the covenant of marriage with your spouse, um, you're, this is very politically incorrect, I know it, but it's the truth, it's in the word, that when you enter into a covenant of marriage with your spouse, your body ceases to be your own. We, it belongs to you, the two of you together. Your bodies belong to the two of you together. And God has designed sex to be as a gift to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage. 
And what is a gift? A gift is something that is freely and lovingly given. No strings attached. There's not supposed to be, right? It is to, a gift that is to be enjoyed within, by two people, a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage for life. No strings attached. So don't use it as a tool or as a weapon to get what you want. Now, we're done with sex for now, okay? No more. At least not today. We're going to use that conversation, however, as kind of a springboard. The Apostle Paul uses that conversation as a springboard into that deeper issue that I alluded to earlier, however, and he starts that conversation or that transition here in verse 17. You'll see it up here. In verse 17, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? It's important to remember that. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, I'm always telling you never lift a verse out of its context, right? Because the context will inform the verse. So knowing the context that we've been talking about, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me try to explain it to you. The first thing, if you want to understand the, the whole context and then that verse, one of the things that you need to, to remember is that um, everybody in the Corinthian church were new converts to Christianity, right? Now, how can I say that with such confidence? How can I know that every person, every Christian in the Corinthian church is a new convert because Christianity is brand new, right? So I can say that. We know that everybody is new, which means that they have very vivid memories of what their lives were like before Christ and what their lives are becoming now that they have Christ. Their lives have been turned upside down by the advent of the reality of Jesus in their lives. Everything that their, their, their entire worldview has changed because they have, because they have converted to Christianity, because they've accepted Jesus into their heart. But, even though everything in them has begun the process of change, not every circumstance of their life has changed with it or with them. For example, not every married couple in the Corinthian church, not, not all, some of them had one spouse convert and the other spouse didn't convert. And it created a, an incongruency in their marriage because they had different worldviews now, right? Um, there were people in the Corinthian church, there were some that before their conversion, they were slaves, literally slaves. And after their conversion, they were still literally slaves. And it was so incongruent to them because they had received the freedom that is theirs in Christ, yet they were still in bondage, right? I mean, it's so weird, this, this whole... So what we had here was we had these groups of people who, who their new life in Christ was incongruent with the circumstances of their life that they had before Christ and they still have now. And everything within them was wanting to leave those incongruencies behind and move into the new life that Christ had for them. 
Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, Paul says, verse 17, in essence what he said is, hold on for a minute, hold your horses. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. If I were to interpret that for you in, in context of this passage, what he's saying is, ask yourself a question. Are you willing today, this is, this is your life today, are you willing to set aside what you want for what's best for somebody else? For example, are you willing, even though being married, for a Christian to be married to a non-Christian, and by the way, it's just as hard for a non-Christian to be married to a Christian? Again, why? Well, different worldviews. He's saying, are you willing to stay in that marriage in the hope that God might use you to bring your spouse, your unbelieving spouse, to salvation? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to set aside what you want for what God might want to do through you? Are you willing to, um, today, by the way, before I, before I move on to that next thing, let me just say this. You need to hear what's, what's being said and what's not being said. Some people might hear what I'm saying and go, oh, that I, I'm in an abusive marriage and I, need to, I just need to deal with it because that's where God wants me to be. No, that is not what he's talking about here. If you are being abused, get out of that marriage. Listen to me. You shouldn't, you don't have to be, you are not called to be abused. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being in a, in a marriage that feels incongruent. In a marriage that is maybe difficult because you have different worldviews. You don't see eye to eye. Are you willing to today be in that marriage in the hope that maybe tomorrow both of you would be saved? That God might use you to bring salvation to your spouse, to your unbelieving spouse? Are you willing to, to be um, a slave and with the hope that maybe God would use you to bring your master to salvation. He's asking you today. He's not saying that, that you should never aspire to more or a different, better life. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, are you willing today to live the life that has been assigned to you and the calling that has been placed in front of you knowing that there's hope for a different life in the future. Are you willing? That's a good thing to hear, and that's a good encouragement to hear, but here's the problem with the whole thing. The problem is that isn't natural for most human beings. The truth is, naturally, human beings want what they want. If this doesn't feel good, I want, I, want, I, I, wanna, I want to make myself feel good. 
So, naturally, what we will do is we will um, aspire to, for a, to a marriage with someone that will fulfill my needs better than the last one did, the last spouse did, right? Or I want to, uh, I'm going to aspire to a job that will fill my aspirations better than the last one did. Or I will uh, aspire to buy a, a new car better than the last one did. You see where this is going? You see, when we, when we want only what we want, guess what? It, maybe you've already discovered this, but it's never really kind of coalesced into a thought yet. But what, if we live our lives wanting only what we want, we have bound ourselves for a life of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. Because just think, just right now, just right where you are today, if you've been living a life wanting only what you want, where has it got you? Are you satisfied? Well, I was satisfied for about six months until that car didn't satisfy me anymore. You bind yourself to a life of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment. So here's what's really incongruent is in order to actually live a life that is um, ultimately satisfying and fulfilling, you need to stop your natural decision-making process. You need to stop making every decision based on what you want. But how do you do that? And so, remember before, we, we just identified the problem. The problem is we're all selfish, and we want what we want. And it leads to dissatisfaction and unfulfillment and emptiness. So what's the solution? Jesus. Billy said that last week. What's the answer every time somebody asks you a question in church? Jesus. <laughs> right? But it, it's more than just Jesus. Because you know that, did you know the Bible says that even the demons believe and, and tremble? Did you know that? So it's more than just Jesus. It is inviting Jesus to be your Lord. We've talked about this many times. If you've been around, you've heard me say this before, but every human being, every human being has a throne inside of their hearts, right? And chances are you're sitting on it. I'm sitting on it. And we have to make the conscious decision to get up off that throne and invite Jesus to sit there and be, for him to be in charge, for him to, to want what he wants more than what we want. And talk about incongruency, but when you make the conscious decision to stop making it all about what you want and you make it about what he wants, it's then that you will become satisfied and fulfilled. Isn't that weird? But it's the truth. And it's not rocket science, is it? It's the truth. And today, Jesus is inviting you to get off the throne and let him sit there. He's inviting you to be obedient to him as your Lord and know that when you stop making it all about you and you make it all about him, that's all about others, satisfaction, fulfillment and peace will come to you. As you come forward to receive communion this morning, 
That's what God is inviting every single one of us to do. And by the way, this process, this is a process, by the way. It is a decision, but it's an ongoing decision. So there are days I take two steps forward spiritually and one step back. Does anybody else ever do that? It's that you are, we are in the journey of being saved. We are in the journey of living into the fullness of Christ. So there's going to be days you do it well, and there's going to be other moments during the same day that you don't. But be on the journey. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And that hope and that fulfillment and that satisfaction that your heart is yearning for will belong to you because you belong to him.